0: Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know.
1: Prior to the pandemic, it was really tough to convince a school district that they should have a, an LMS, a learning management system, online learning and have all the teachers have all their lessons and everything up there. The pandemic, you had to have that. So all of a sudden, you know, a reluctant marketplace became um, just showed up at your door.
0: From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically, and now, by all means. If you're a K through 12 student or the parent of one, you probably have an app on your phone called Infinite Campus. It's the software platform thousands of schools across the country use to manage class schedules, post grades, schedule conferences, basically all the administrative aspects of school with the goal of minimizing paperwork so that teachers can focus on teaching and parents can get a real-time glimpse at how their students are doing. Charlie Cratch started Infinite Campus in 1993, long before kids had their own iPads in the classroom. As his vision evolved, the company grew and grew. Today, Infinite Campus, based in the Northern Twin Cities suburb of Blaine, employs 500 people and continues to be at the forefront of education technology, a category that has been growing by leaps and bounds since the onset of the pandemic. Like most successful entrepreneurs, Charlie was driven by curiosity and purpose and his own life experience as the child of educators. And he was a kid who didn't really like school. The
1: earliest memory I have of anything related to business was being in first grade. And at Golden Lake Elementary, they had all of our uh, learning materials were on laminated folders. Uh And instead of pens or pencils, you had grease pencils that you used to write on those folders. And to get the grease pencils, you had to go to the school store and buy them. And they cost like a nickel. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were shopping with my parents at one point, And I realized at Target, I could buy these grease pencils for about a penny and a half each. And if I could sell them to my fellow students for, let's say, three cents, I'd be doubling my money and they'd be saving money and uh, this was pretty good. You know, I made, you know, a few dollars on that. When uh-huh. you're, you know, first grade, that's a, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And I think that at that point, I really uh, discovered uh, I like business. <laughs> and uh, and maybe maybe I was an entrepreneur, although oh, I didn't, okay. know, of course, know the term at the time.
0: Right, right. But that puts you on the path. So yeah. did you, so you like business. Did you have, you know, as you grew up, as you went through high school and, and college did you know what you wanted to do with that? What kind of business?
1: No, not at all. The, uh, um, the thing I would say about kind of my journey from, from there to here was being on my own and completely unguided. There was no instruction manual. Um, I grew up around a lot of educators and uh, my grandmother uh, was a teacher. My grandf- and my other grandmother was a, an artist. My grandfather, one of them was an engineer, the other was a Southern Baptist minister. Mm -hmm. You know, and I kind of see myself as a combination of all four of them Hmm. through my parents. And while my dad was an accountant, um, my parents got divorced when I was 10, and my mother married, uh, it was kind of a nightmare of anybody, married uh, my elementary school principal. And uh, I I claimed that I brought them together because I was always in trouble. And uh, she would have to come and pick me up. And that's probably how the whole thing started. So uh, there really wasn't a, a chosen path. It was just always, and this is kind of, I talk to a lot of colleges and universities and their entrepreneurship programs. And I'm, I'm always amazed that, I, I don't understand how you can learn to be an entrepreneur. From my standpoint, I think you're either born to be one or not. Hmm. And it's a mentality of seeing opportunity and willing to take risk to go after that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody sees opportunity, but are you really willing to, to take risk to make it happen? And that's yeah. something I don't think you can teach. And also why I think most entrepreneurs kind of reveal themselves when they're younger because they don't know any better. The older <laughs> you get, you, you recognize, you know, what's at risk, what right. you can lose. But boy, when you're young, you don't care. You just right. do crazy things. Especially
0: before you have a mortgage. Yeah, exactly. And all that.
1: And and that's where I think I was lucky. Like I said back, you know, kindergarten, first grade, I started on that path and got the bug. And then um, throughout school, uh, I was doing a lot of different ventures like that, you know, elementary, high school and so on. And uh, I had a number of jobs. Um, You know, it, it was kind of that, you know, everybody knows that kid. I was the one where, you know, I was the high school valedictorian. Oh, good for me. <laughs> uh, also an all-conference athlete, and I was working like three jobs and so on. And later in life, I learned that actually I was probably bipolar at the time hmm. because I would go, you know, weeks with almost no sleep. And then there, you know, the overachiever is what everybody, you yeah. know, would what, label what pushed you as.
0: You? What pushed you to be an overachiever, do you think?
1: I don't know. It was just, you know, and that's why I think it was more of a mental health thing. It was directing all that energy. But then there would be streaks where it was like, oh, I can't get out of bed. Well, he's mm-hmm. just having a few down days. Leave him alone. And I would say where I lucked out was not recognizing that that may have been a mental health issue. What I kind of discovered on my own was cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was keep active, direct all this energy. And, and I liken it to surfing. You have these waves of energy that come through. You ride that. And then on the downside, you kind of take a break. And where I think that's really helped me in business has been, you have a lot of crazy ideas on those manic phases. you got all kinds of things going on. But then when you go through a depressive phase, you question everything. Yeah. Why am I doing this? And all the stupid things get pushed out of the way. And the good ones kind of bubble to the top. And a lot of times in businesses, it takes two or three people you know, to go back and forth on that. And that's right. I think, you know, where I was at that point in time, um, I was both those people wrapped up in one. And how I discovered that was bipolar was probably a whole nother story we may or may not get to into, especially when we talk about what I do in my foundation with behavioral health. But, you know, through high school, I had a number of jobs. And one of my jobs was working at the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, or MAC. If anybody out there remembers playing Oregon Trail or Number Mm, Munchers, mm -hmm. that's what I used to do. Okay, And so that was really the the genesis of my interest in educational technology. So taking what I loved about tech um, and all the things I was doing, programming video games and whatnot, and combining that with a lot of my um, family history and education and understanding how K-12 works and putting the two together. And uh, so that, that kind of back in, this would be the early 80s, was mm-hmm. really that seed was planted. Now, when I graduated from high school, ironically, I vowed never to set foot in another school again because I hated school. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh,
0: Valedictorian hated school.
1: It's not uncommon. I would have dropped out if I could have, but having, you know, stepfather who's a principal, that wasn't going wasn't to happen.
0: So did you go to college?
1: No. And I was, you know, it's funny. You talk to a lot of people and they're the first in, in their family to ever go to college. Uh-huh. I'm the first in many generations that hasn't. <laughs> and that was a very interesting conversation, but I had a different learning style. I can't sit in a class and listen to teachers. You know, I have a kinesthetic learning style. I have to learn while I'm doing. I've got to move around. I've got to build things, constantly be in motion. That's why it was a, a behavior problem mm-hmm. all through school. It's just I couldn't sit there, so I spent all my time just thinking about how to screw around with a teacher, you know, and get in their head. <laughs> And, uh, you know, wow. And, so, yeah. so
0: what did you do after high school graduation?
1: So, you know, I was recruited uh, to a number of places, both on like football and, and academic scholarships and decided that nah, wasn't going to be for me. So I went into business and um, I got involved with a couple different startups. I was working about three jobs out of high school um, in different capacities, but uh, one of them was a startup. And that was probably my best education, because in that startup, I didn't start it up. It was somebody else who had, and I, they were in trouble. And so I helped them out from a tech standpoint. I learned everything you shouldn't do when mm. you're running a business. Mm-hmm. Little did I know, what was I, I was witnessing all the don'ts. Yeah. And even to this day, I think back of what would those guys would have done in this situation and then do the opposite. <laughs> And a big part of it was just, you know, treating employees well and also having, you know, a, a very clear vision of yeah. what you're doing and so on. And so I got involved in that startup. And then through that, I met a lot of people and wound up starting up my own company and then sold that, made some money on that, took all the profits from that, started you know, that. What
0: was that? Just the
1: briefly. the next company. Um, that was uh, the Mentis Group. After that, uh, we were doing a lot of work in uh, telecommunications, information systems. This is when AT and was broken up, mm. and so all the regional Bell operating companies. We were doing some advertising and information systems for them, mm-hmm. and learned a lot through that. Sold out of that, and then started another company, and we did work in healthcare. We were doing uh, kind of the first generation of patient information systems, big scale databases, mm-hmm. and then uh, sold out of that and retired this was uh this was 30 years ago and um so
0: you made some was it enough money that you thought you didn't have to work oh yeah okay yeah
1: yeah. and then uh you know my wife informed me that we were pregnant and I asked her you know which meeting did I miss (laughs) and uh, (laughs) she said you said you know when you sold out of this company we could start a family and (laughs) and so I said all right cool you know so I was a stay-at-home dad for about a year and like she said that didn't stick and uh uh we swapped roles. She was working at the time mostly just for the healthcare. Um she's working over at Delox. And so we swapped and uh, I started up Infinite Campus and uh
0: But but weren't yeah. you working for a, a school district? I thought well, you Well, had- when I
1: started Infinite Campus, this is uh, about 29 years ago. Um I decided that well, really what I was thinking about doing was the things we were doing at Mech, with the, the learning games, mm-hmm. but doing them on the Internet with the web browser. If you think back to 93, you know, that was just the beginning of that. And I'd expose, been exposed to a lot of the Internet stuff through what we were doing in the telecommunications industry. And also with web browsers, I was doing some work with the University of Minnesota with our Gopher project, which was one of the first web browsers out there. And I thought, boy, it'd be really cool if we could do these learning games online on the Internet. But I wanted to learn more about how this would fit into school districts. And so at that same time, the technology director at Centennial, where I went to school, where my stepfather was a principal, uh, he had a heart attack and uh, decided he wanted to retire. And so I saw that as an opportunity that um, in exchange for me also serving as a technology director at Centennial, I would be able to use the school district kind of as a guinea pig for I these see. ideas. So
0: you already had, I thought you were there and that's what sparked no, the idea. No, 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 You no. went there because you had the idea.
1: You're, yes, exactly. Interesting.
0: Is that a path that you would recommend to other founders? In, in a
1: way that if you don't have, you know, domain expertise, that you either need to hire somebody that does or you need to get it yourself because if you don't understand, you know, whatever you're going after, you know, while I understood technology, I really didn't understand how K12 worked. And this is a mistake a lot of people make with with education and K12. Just cuz you went to school doesn't mean you know how that mm-hmm. animal operates. And so I spent about 3 years serving as their technology director just studying every aspect of K12. I went to every meetings and trust me in K12 there are plenty of meetings to mm-hmm. attend. Mm-hmm. District administration meetings or DAM meetings, as they used to call them, special ed meetings, facilities meetings, you name it. And what I was doing was modeling. Now, I'm not you know, pretty to look at. It wasn't that kind of modeling. <laughs> it was what we call data modeling, reducing everything that they did in the school district to a data model and, and the interaction in that model. And that became the foundation of my product. Now, that being said, we were way ahead of our time when it came to the technology to implement that. And that was actually a blessing in disguise because that allowed me to spend, you know, probably a better part of six years working on the product without the pressure of having to deliver something and really refining the architecture of what we were doing, what was under the hood. Mm-hmm. And then um, also being embedded at Centennial there, we had our offices literally in their school district. You're surrounded by customers. And so when they have a problem, you don't just get an email or a phone call they show up at your desk, mm-hmm. very angry, you know, and that really focuses you on what yeah. needs to be done. And then with Infinite Campus, I had enough money to fund it all myself. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, again, was fortuitous, because I've been able to maintain control and ownership of the company for all these years. And that's allowed me to continue to, you know, stay on mission and also stay engaged because there's no one really to to, to argue with other than myself, you know, <laughs> which I do a lot, you know, reference the earlier conversation. Sure. So with Infinite Campus, it really was, when I wrote my business plan, it was a 30-year business plan. Hmm. And, you know, what I wanted to do, actually it was shorter than that on the first version because my plan was to go to college with my younger son, kind of like Rodney Dangerfield and back to school. Yeah. And. When he went to college, he told me in no uncertain words he didn't want me anywhere around him. So, what a surprise. Yeah, I yeah. had to stick with the company. How about that? But long-term, it was really to make a difference, to transform K-12 education, to create, you know, to change K-12 into a system that I would have wanted to go to school at. Hmm. And we're continuing to work on that. But a lot of it has to do with personalization, differentiated learning, and those kind of things. And that's been the goal. And so from a company standpoint, yeah, we make money. But we reinvest all that money in our product and in our vision and in our employees. And so we are, like I tell people, we are probably the most non-profit feeling, for-profit company you'll ever come into contact with.
0: So what were the big learnings from the time that you were working in the school district, but, but, you know, kind of ideating on Infinite Campus? Yeah, the
1: eye-openers were, you know, things like right at the beginning when I was talking to my stepfather he would tell me things like, he could very accurately predict how well students were going to do in school. I said, great. <laughs> tell me. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, yeah, I just look at the parents. I'm like, okay, genetics. I get it. And He goes, no, it's not genetics. If the parents are actively involved in their kids' education, they're generally going to do well. But if they're not, it's up to the school and the school will generally fail. And that's where I started to shift my thinking on what my company was going to do from just games and whatnot to student administration, tracking Mm -hmm. records and everything. Because what I saw was with this web browser technology, we could put that in the hands of all of the parents and guardians out there so they have that clear view into what's happening in the school. Because if you think back, like when a lot of us went to school, the only time your parents really found out what was going on was report card time or conferences. And really, you're driving by looking in the rearview mirror. And with what we did going online with all this information as a parent or guardian, you have real-time information Mm -hmm. about everything, and you're now that active participant in your uh, child's education. It's part of that learning community. And then when it comes time to conference time, you're not reviewing what happened last term. You're talking about what are the things we can do going forward to, to better manage this learning process. And so that portal concept, you know, that everybody has, and of course now everything's on phones with our apps and whatnot, most of our company in managing the operations of a school district, whether it's enrolling kids, building schedules, taking attendance, behavior, whatever, is really just content that's being pushed out to the parents. Yeah, it helps the school run better, but it's getting the parents and guardians involved. And that is kind of our core mission. And now we've gotten, especially through the pandemic, more into the learning processes. What's happening in the classroom and how can we t- make a teachers more efficient.
0: So did you have that realization before you started actually building Infinite Campus? No, mean, were, no. So you were games and programs in the early yeah, days. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't just the admin the way I think of it now. I mean, I go to my kids' yeah. school site and it's all Infinite Campus. I've got the app and that's what I'm logging into to see yeah. how they're doing.
1: Yeah. no that 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 was, you know, the the the, the games part of it like we we're doing at Mac with Oregon Trail and all that. That was really the first idea, but Coming in contact with our customers, being embedded in, in the Centennial School District and, and sitting in classrooms with teachers, sitting next to secretaries and guidance counselors mm-hmm. and looking at their world, it became clear that we first had to solve that administration problem. Okay, And we became really the first generation of, of this kind of system. The, the difficulty was, like I said earlier, we were, we were so far ahead of our time. Again, this is 93, 94, 95. Web technology was not ready for this. Yeah, And it really wasn't until about 2000, 2001 that it came on. But when school districts started saying, yeah, we need that technology, we were the only game in town. Hmm. And that's when we kind of blew up.
0: And did you – you were certain that technology was – that it was coming, that oh, they yeah. were going to get there?
1: Yep. It just, you have to have patience. And I think that's the unfortunate thing when you look, especially at a lot of tech firms these days, is they don't have patience. Everything's next quarter. You know, we're going to invest millions and millions of dollars and we're going to make this go within the year or we're going to blow it up. Mm-hmm. And I'm more old school where y- y- it takes time to do things right. And um, that, like I said, that was the the advantage I had by keeping control of the company and having money to invest. That not only could we do things the way I wanted to do it, but we could take our time and do it right mm-hmm. and so especially it was about maybe fifteen years ago we really popped up on the radar nationally, and people talked about this overnight success, you mm. know, and I would laugh, it's like overnight, yeah <laughs> let me let me tell you the history of this. <laughs> I mean, you know this is this is taking a lot of time to cook this thing, but yeah.
0: How complicated was, I mean, building your software, setting up this system, how complex was that? Was that the challenge or was it getting the school districts to actually buy in?
1: Yeah, that's a, yeah it's about 50-50. Uh, 50% is really struggling with the technology, especially in the early days of, of the Internet. I mean, today there's tools to do everything. But boy, mm-hmm. you go back 20, 30 years, we had to invent everything. Like what? Give me an example. Um, our pricing model software you know prior to 2000 was always sold as an asset and uh, so you pay a lot of money up front and then you pay like 20% maintenance ongoing mm-hmm. well one of the things i understood is schools didn't have money to spend like that and so being a tech director what i saw was our capital budget where you buy computers or fix the roof or whatever that always was tough to get anything out of the capital budget you know do you buy new software or do you fix the roof you fix the roof But the operating budget, that's what nobody looked at. Hmm. And if you could figure out how to bury yourself in the operating budget, you get that money forever. And so what I started doing was I charged a per student per year rate for our product. So it was lower than that initial price. But if you went out about three to five years, that was the break even. But everything after that, we were making money.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And well, today that's called software as a service. Everybody does that. Well, I was doing that back, you know, in 94 out of necessity just to figure out how to get money. So we had to invent that pricing model. Okay. Another problem we had was districts didn't have the ability to, the technical ability to maintain their own web servers to run this. So I decided I was going to have my web servers when I started at Centennial and I could run other school districts like North St. Paul and everybody else. From Centennial. because Who cares? It's on the web, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now that's, you know, we all talk about AWS and web hosting. Yeah, we were doing that back in the 90s. And so that tech side, you know, we were inventing a lot of things and, and, and getting a lot of things right. And then the other side, about the other half of the, the challenge was the education side, like you're talking about. Solving problems that educators have. Working with teachers, you know, simple things like, uh, you know, like I said, back when we went to school, uh, all the teachers' grades and attendance were in their red book. Mm -hmm. And when you put that online, everybody can see that red book all the time. Teachers don't like or they didn't like that. (laughs) And so what we did was I would bribe usually one teacher per grade level per department to use my online grade book. And the way I bribed them is they get a brand new computer, <laughs> you know, out of, you know, the district's technology budget. Yeah. Because what I knew, and, and the, the, the deal was they get that new computer, but they would use my online grade book. And then what I knew what would happen is the next parent-teacher conference, and you could watch it, you know, in the cafeteria with all the tables. The, the teacher the parents went to first was the teacher who was online mm-hmm. because the parents wanted to have that conversation. And then they would go to the next teacher and say, why, why aren't your grades online? And that parental pressure brought the rest of the teachers online.
0: Wow. And you just stood there saying, aha, it's working. It's working. Yeah, it
1: took like about a year, a year and a half, but we got all the teachers on.
0: That's amazing. So
1: you just, you know, you you, you figure that kind of stuff out. And again, that's more of the kind of entrepreneurship side of it. You just see the problem. You try to figure out a way to fix it.
0: So you started with your own school district. At a certain point, I imagine you did step away from that technology director role.
1: Yeah, there was an overlap. And so we started expanding across the state, and so uh, local school districts, like uh, Spring Lake Park and North St. Paul, Eden Prairie, and so on, started jumping on. Mm-hmm. I good
0: in in the 90s, in yeah the...
1: okay, yeah. and this would be the mid-90s, okay. and and that was mostly just serving as technology director. I had met and had relationships with the other technology directors, sure. and so we would talk about this, and it got to the point like, yeah, I think we'll uh, we'll try that out. And then I started branching out statewide. A lot of the outstate districts started coming on. And then, like in 2001, St. Paul Public Schools mm. went on with our product. So that was our first kind of big urban district. And then right about that same time, the state of South Dakota adopted our product statewide for all of their school districts. And then, you know, boom, it grew. Yeah. About So it was about 96, maybe 97, I gave up my role as technology director at Centennial. But we were still located in the district, and we were there through about 2000 or 2001 before we had to move out because they were just running out of space for us.
0: How many districts do you serve today?
1: Today, uh, we have 2,300 school districts with enrollment of about 8 million students, and that's uh, you know, about 24,000 schools. There are more schools using our product than there are McDonald's restaurants. So that's a metric a lot of people can relate to. It's pretty big it's across about, the country. Yep, it's about twenty percent of the student population in the country. We have uh, big districts like uh, Las Vegas, Clark County, Nevada. They have about thirty what uh, three hundred forty thousand kids there now. Mm-hmm. Huge district. We have a lot of other urban districts like Philadelphia and Baltimore, Chicago, or not Chicago, um, Milwaukee, Atlanta, Denver districts like that lots of suburban districts and then a bazillion rural districts we have districts hmm. in Montana that have no kids in them it's really weird they wait for somebody to be born to move in or move in and then they activate the district and everything in between crazy yeah it's do different.
0: you have direct competitors what what are, what are yeah. the other districts doing yeah there's we we've got uh, a
1: lot of our competitors are uh regional you know there's, you know, like a specific competitor that only does California, another one that only does New Jersey. Mm. And then there's about two or three other competitors that have a fairly decent-sized national customer base. Our biggest competitor is a private equity firm that's been buying up all the competition, mm. not only in what we do directly, but in a lot of other things that K-12 uses. And they've spent about $2.5 billion to build a company that roughly does what we do. Wow. and and. You know, You've so never
0: taken any outside nope, funding? Nope, nope. We're 100% organic. Okay. That's so How organic. long did it take to start turning a profit? Oh, we turned profit from day
1: one. That was another thing I was able to do. When you start small and cheap, I would invest money. But, you know, for example, something as simple as working at Centennial, they paid me. Mm-hmm. You know, so my paycheck was covered, which I didn't need. So I, in turn, when I hired somebody, basically the money Centennial is paying me to be tech director, I paid, to, mm. you know, my staff. And then you got the next school district on and uh, that allowed us to expand a little more. So we've never run a deficit.
0: How many employees do you have today?
1: We have 500 okay. in, in Blaine. yeah.
0: When you think about what Infinite Campus does today, what your key services are, how similar is it to what you launched in the 90s?
1: Yeah, not even close. I mean, it is to me, it's it, it's a very parallel to my family when you think about like when my sons were born, they were just lumps of flesh that <laughs> ate and crapped, right? That was kind of the initial company. And then they grow and they get their own personalities. And, you know, that was kind of us in the late 90s. And then the teen years, which was kind of us in, you know, probably about 2008, you know, and then, uh, where we are right now, uh, the company's all grown up and kind of moved on, just like my boys out of college and off doing their own thing. You know, the company runs itself right now, and that's you know that's the you know when you're a parent, probably the the proudest thing is when your your kids are self sufficient. You don't mm-hmm. have to worry about it. You still worry, but you don't have to worry anymore. That's where my company is. Where um, um, it it functions on its own, and that frees me up to explore what's, what's the next move for the company and then also with our foundation. What are we doing there? And a lot of my work in politics. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like when I talked about my goal was to retire when my kids went to college. I've kind of retired again, but I'm still involved. It's like the best of all worlds.
0: What happens when you throw a pandemic into the mix? Charlie tells us right after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best & Flanagan. Understand, identify, manage, protect, and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets. Expect a customized approach from Best Flanagan with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. Education technology has never been more in demand or appreciated than in the last few years. Charlie fills us in on the latest innovations at Infinite Campus and the work of his foundation.
1: Our core product, as we refer to it, is our student information system. That is streamlining educational processes, enrolling kids, building schedules, taking attendance, you know, grading, transcripts. That's our core business. And then as we've expanded out from that into other areas, including things like managing the uh, food service operation and and online payments and all those things, the real big expansion has been in teaching and learning, the learning management systems that teachers use in their classroom with students and uh, uh, really changing the way the classroom dynamic works. That is the ultimate goal of what we're doing. And we're getting close to that to the point where, after nearly thirty years, I see that everything we've been doing for the thirty years and the industry's really been doing for fifty years we're going to see more change in the next five, and that's been accelerated by the pandemic
0: I was going to say yeah. what what happened to a company like yours when yeah. the pandemic hit and everybody had yeah. to go home?
1: Yeah, learning management because now students are all learning online, mm-hmm. every district had to have. You know, prior to the pandemic, it was really tough to convince a school district that they should have a, an LMS, a learning management system, online learning and have all the teachers have all their lessons and everything up there. The pandemic, you had to have that. So all of a sudden, you know, a reluctant marketplace became, um, just showed up at your door. Now, that being said, with all the federal money that was dumped in, there were a lot of companies kind of carpetbagging, just coming in and dumping product into the market but that's nice because when all that federal money runs out and the districts have to renew they're not going to have enough money themselves and we're we're there you know we're we're a fraction of the price because it's integrated we're already starting to see that boom happen and so it's kind of that that really third big boom within our company and and we're expanding quite rapidly we're expanding our operation in Blaine we're hiring anybody that shows up <laughs> you know it's a uh, it's a process.
0: What would you say is the biggest need right now? In, I mean, it seems like education has a lot of needs, uh, K through 12. But what do you see as as the biggest need that perhaps technology could help to solve?
1: Right. Well, I think what it is, a lot of the K-12 model in the past really relied on high-quality teachers. It, it really did. And you can think, you know, most people, when you think of your K 12 experience, you can always think of those great, you know, maybe that one or two teachers that were really inspiring and awesome, the super teachers. A lot of mediocre teachers, and then, you know, a few that really shouldn't have been in the profession. Well, what we've seen now during the pandemic is a lot of those quality teachers have retired. The teachers, the great teachers who would have normally replaced them aren't going into the field. And so, what I see the role of technology being is taking an average teacher. And making them great. Hmm. And there are ways you can do that. How? Well, one is information, knowing the kid. That if you have good information about the student, what their likes and dislikes are, and also if you have all the different learning objects, the different learning experiences the kids can do available, but instead of the teacher having to create those or find those, the computer can recommend them. And so, you know, taking a lot of the tasks that a teacher would normally do. Creating lesson plans, grading papers, and all those things, they don't have to do that anymore. Giving them the time to focus on their relationship with a student. And then changing the way, you know, if you think of, um, you know, like especially middle school and high school, you know, you would switch classes every 45 minutes or an hour. Mm -hmm. So a teacher would come in contact with 150 to 200 kids. You can't learn about the kids. Well, with technology now, we can change the way the bell schedules and other things work. So you can spend more time, more quality time with the kids and have more flexibility. And not when the bell rings, everything's done. You can get rid of the bells, you know, and it becomes a lot more like we see in the workplace where you schedule time as needed, you know, and it's not as is as, as rigid. And that technology can help that. The administrative technology, the, you know, again, the, the learning systems for the teachers. And then, of course, increased parent and guardian involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw during the pandemic through data, there's kind of four quadrants when you think about it. If you were, if you were a white kid in an affluent family, not free reduced lunch, you actually did better during the pandemic than you did prior.
2: Hmm.
1: If you are- And, and that's because why? you were basically homeschooled. Mm-hmm. And it goes right back to what I was saying about the first thing my stepfather said when I got into this. And, you know, a lot of people listening to this are probably more affluent than average. And they probably, during the pandemic, were working from home and their kids were home with them. Mm -hmm. They were homeschooling their kids. And that attention, the kids will do better. Sure. So
0: that's quadrant one. That's
1: quadrant. That's a good story. If you were white and lower socioeconomic status, so basically on free or reduced lunch, you did about the same Mm -hmm. before and after the pandemic or before and during. If you were minority, non-white, and affluent, not for your reduced lunch, eat it about the same. But if you were in that fourth quadrant, if you were especially black and low socioeconomic status, you got boned. I mean, it was just, you just see the numbers drop off. And the best example is Philadelphia. When the pandemic hit, about 20 to 25% of the students in Philadelphia disappeared. Hmm. They, and we had a check-in function in our product. All you had to do every day online was say, I'm here. That was it. Yeah. 20% of the kids, nope. They disappeared. Is that because they didn't have access to didn't even check? Didn't have technology. Yeah. They had nobody to make sure they got online or got out of bed in the morning. You know, whatever it is, they had almost no education and they disappeared. And the way that we see that reflection, now not only lower test scores and other things people talk about, but in crime. Because what were these kids during, doing during that during that time? You know, idle, idle minds, the playground, of the devil kind of thing. And they were, you know, out jacking cars and doing whatever. And and we lost a good part of that generation. You can see it in the data. It's it's sad, but using that as a cautionary tale, looking forward, those relationships are important. And so technology, not using technology to isolate people like happened during the pandemic. You know, teaching via Zoom and all that is is garbage. It doesn't work, but Creating those relationships, whether the relationships between the parent or guardian and the student, the teacher and the student, other organizations, you realize that, you know, as mammals, those relationships are important. By the way, the same thing we've seen um, in our business. Um, We have a very good kind of corporate culture, the way that we work at our company up in Blaine, nice offices, all the benefits and whatnot. When COVID hit, people are working from home. We only had 12 people left in our building. Hmm. And we coasted for about a year on everything we had built before that. But you could see, you know, even though the employees say their productivity was going up, we measure it very close. It was going down. And what happened was the employees just started focusing on their own job. Here's what I got to do to get through this day because I got my kids here. I got all these other problems, whatnot. And when we've, now we've got everybody back in the office, we've had them back in the office all year, was that a request or an order? Uh, more the latter than the former. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we had a number of employees quit. I mean, we also did a vaccine mandate, you know, which wasn't popular, but we're self insured. And uh, you get COVID and show up in the hospital, it costs us $16,000. And so, just economic, get a vaccine, get a shot to the point where we've now put a clinic in our office. We have our own doctors and everything starting in October. Hmm. But yes, it, you're required to. Come to the office work now. We have some flexibility with offsite work, but it's it's work first at the office with teams. And what you started to see was people getting back together. They start. It was less of me and more of we again. Mm. Thinking about because when you're at home, you might have a a Zoom call with the other people in your work group, but you're not. You know, if you're a developer, you're not talking to support people. You're not talking to facilities and things. You get back in our office, and you know, we've got an onsite restaurant. People eat together and whatnot. People start talking with each other. They're it becomes more of we now. You start to see the bigger picture, and that is our competitive advantage against these much bigger, much better-funded companies. Is we're much more efficient and and also mission-driven. Mm-hmm.
0: Will you ever sell this company?
1: No, no. And that is something we. I've had offers forever. You know, I'll have uh, private equity people come to me and say, "Why don't you want to be a billionaire?" I said, "Well, if my company's worth that much, I already am." <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you know, happy me. Yeah. But. That would change everything because now it's profit-driven mm-hmm. and all the decisions are made for different reasons. And I'm good. Don't worry about me. I got plenty of money. I got, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm not missing any meals. And the, uh, so I have a, a trust set up and um, all of my stock is owned by the trust. And so um, I'm pretty sure someday I'll probably die, although... <laughs> We'll see how that goes. I've been talking to Mayo, you know we get some ideas <laughs> but um the the trust has you know i've you know kind of put the uh the thought process into the trust of here are the values of the company mm-hmm. and um by having it in my trust with those values, you don't have somebody that's tempted to to sell you know, and so wait for me to die, and then everybody else gets rich right and the the trust um, also, and what it does is it takes, you know, the profits of the company that aren't reinvested. And a, a, a lot of the trust is controlled now by my foundation. Okay. And so that it all balances out. It's it's kind of crazy. But, but it's yeah.
0: interesting. We're and actually
1: the Patagonia I was just, just going to
0: say, we're recording this the yeah. very week yeah. that the yeah. owner of Patagonia gave his company yep. up. Yeah. Um, he did it
1: as an afterthought. Mine has really been almost from the foundation, like from the start of the company with that in mind. And so it was interesting, my, uh, one of my too many financial advisors had just texted me, I think it was last night when that story came out, he says, this is kind of what we put together for you. And I mm-hmm. said, yeah, yeah, it's a good yeah. idea, isn't
0: it? He, he wants the company to be about solving yeah. climate issues, yeah. just like you want. How, how do you define your mission and values? Well,
1: it's a, what's evolved into, and I talk about it as a three-legged stool, of, of kind of um, preserving our way of life. The, uh, the first leg is transforming K-12 education, and that's what Infinite Camps Incorporated does. We are uh, streamlining educational processes, promoting stacko- stakeholder collaboration, that's the parents getting involved, and also personalizing learning. That is the mission of that company. And then with my
0: foundation... When did you start the foundation?
1: The foundation, we have two... Uh, uh, areas of interest in the foundation. The first is behavioral health, mental health and substance use disorder. And the second is law enforcement. And so between K-12, behavioral health and law enforcement, I think those are the three things that if we can make those run really well, everything else takes care of itself. That and you think about in school, um, if you do poorly in school, your rest of your life is pretty tough. And generally, you're going to end up in prison. (laughs) <laughs> you know. Um, Also, most behavioral health issues, mental health and substance use disorder start in your teens. And if we don't recognize and help treat those in school. You're going to go to prison. You know, largest uh, mental health and substance use disorder provider in the state of Minnesota is the criminal justice system. People don't realize that. But yeah, and it's not very efficient. So working to change that as well. So all these pieces work together. And so pushing on those goals, both through our, our business work and also through our philanthropical work, that's that's the long term. Sure. Yeah,
0: um, that's a, a amazing that you've set it up that way. And I, I th- what have you I think today purpose and mission has become um, so important. We know it's important to to a, a majority of people as far as deciding where they want to work, what companies they want to support. And we see it in in young entrepreneurs maybe wasn't quite as much when you were starting this company in 93. So what advice would you give to founders and business leaders today as far as being purpose-driven in a for-profit company? Yeah.
1: Well, I think, you know, especially when you're talking to uh, younger folks, it's it's a whole lot better if you can find something you're interested in doing. That whenever somebody says, hey, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I want to be rich, I'm like, you're not going to (laughs) be. I mean, you've already... You've already missed the boat on that, that you've, at least from my perspective, you've got to find something you really enjoy because there's going to, you know, it's going to be aggravating, you know, and you've got to stick with it and you're going to be losing money and you probably fail two or three times before you succeed. But if you enjoy what you're doing and you're passionate about it, it can pull you through all of that. And if you're lucky enough to find yourself in that position, you're going to be you know one of the winners in this world. That being said, um, you know there's a lot of people who who work for for large corporations, and they will leave that company and, and have a startup of their own, which is another avenue. You've gone out and you've learned on somebody else's dime and and you can go and do it the, the cautionary tale always is when you were working in that big company, you had a huge structure around you, <laughs> you know, you had marketing, you had legal, you had all this. When you start up, all you've got is you. And that's why I tend to look at, you know, the more successful entrepreneurs, at least I've come in contact with it. I know in different industries and whatnot. You know, I remember back, I was, I think it was like fourth grade. We had a, uh, my neighbor was my teacher and uh, we had a a, a unit I don't know if it was Civics or whatever, but they introduced this concept of the Renaissance man, (laughs) the jack of all trades, master of none, and to this day that just it rang a bell. It's like I'm not a specialist. I'm not really good at it. I'm not great at anything. I'm kind of good at everything. Hmm. And a lot of entrepreneurs that I run into that are successful, they have that same kind of thing where they're not specifically an engineer or a lawyer or any of this. They kind of have an understanding of everything and, and. then what they can do is form that vision and find people who they can plug in to do the different aspects of it. And so that's always my recommendation is if you're, if you're starting off from scratch, you know, and you're a young kid, what are you interested in? Go find a job in that world, learn about it, but then have your off-ramp ready. Because kind of to your point, you start to get older and you have a family and a mortgage, it's tough to get back out of that. Yeah. You know, so you got to start young. But the flip side of it is for the you know the people in their 40s or whatnot is if you're able to amass a lot of cash and whatnot, are you willing to risk all that? And you know I find that I was just talking to somebody the other day. It was before the market tanked again. They're going, God, you know my portfolio is really great. Um, I'm thinking about leaving and starting a company. I said, Great. How much you got saved? They told me how much. I said, So you're ready to spend all that? Well, no, I don't think I have to spend any of it. Mm-hmm. That's my that's my safety net. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go out and raise money from other people. And that's the first thing I say is, you know, uh, I invest in other businesses. I know a lot of investors. If you're not willing to put your own money in, why would anybody else put money in? Hmm. You've got to be willing. And that's the entrepreneur side of it. Take that risk. If you're not willing to put your money at risk first and put your family and friends' money at risk, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, when you think about um young charlie charlie in elementary school who was getting in trouble yeah, would a school system with infinite campus as it is today have helped you said that that was you know that was kind of your goal
1: yeah, yeah you know i would have been i would have been better served by probably a lot of the charter schools that are out there that I benefit a lot from being in a public school district, and I wouldn't trade that for the world. As a matter of fact, with my kids, I could have sent them anywhere, but I put them in big public districts because I think there's more than just you know reading and writing. I think it's socialization. Mm-hmm. You know, when I went to Centennial in the you know '70s and early '80s, we were the biggest whitest school in the state. I mean, I never knew anybody of color, mm-hmm. and uh, except when we played Marshall U, they were all black, and that was quite the thing. And then when I got out into the real world after high school, you know, I realized, God, you know, there's a lot of different perspectives on yeah, things. Yeah. And I think that's part of education that we don't see. And so, like with my kids going to big, diverse public school districts, they learn that and they've got a completely different outlook in life. And I think that's important. And so I think, you know, you know, if 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 I were in school today, I would have come out completely different, you know. It was a different time. And also, just think about even, I I think my wife and I suffered from this a bit. I think kids tend to be overmanaged, you know, play dates and all this kind of thing. When I grew up, you were on your own. I mean, just when the streetlights come on, make sure you're home. Mm -hmm. During the day, we were, oh, my God, the things we were into. I I don't know how we even survived most of that. (laughs) But that—that's really formed who I am. The risk taker and everything else came from that. Just being on your own as a kid,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I, you know, I struggle with that. You know, like when we were raising our kids, we try to give them space, but that went sideways with one of them. But I think we're, we've kind of, to a great extent, raised a generation of kids that I think are overmanaged by their parents, and I think they're also. Um, what, over-scrutinized by social media, you know? I mean, God, if there was social media when I was a kid, I'd yeah. be in prison, yeah, you know, for the things I was thinking and doing. I just, I wonder about that. It's different, but they also have more opportunity, you know, that...
0: All the data and information is a double-edged sword, yeah, right? I mean, the yeah. same things that you're talking about, I mean... You've also made it easier for all of us, um, you know, overbearing parents to log on and constantly be monitoring what our kids are doing and are they where they're supposed to be and what are the grades? When I
1: travel around, um, like I'm going through TSA and the TSA, I always, everything I have has an Infinite Campus logo on it. And I can always tell if they're a good student or bad student, you know, a TSA agent will be like, oh, Infinite Campus. Yeah, I loved you guys, usually the, the ladies. And then, you know, the guy is like, I hate you. Additional screening, you know, and put the blue gloves on.
0: Because they remember. They,
1: oh, you know, yeah. They always they couldn't get away with anything. And so, you know, that's my point is it's different. I don't know if it's better or worse because, you know, for example, when I was growing up, a lot of your um, opportunity was really dependent on where you lived. Mm-hmm. And today that's not so much the case. And I think that's a good thing. And also a lot of it was, you know, race, you know, being a white kid in the suburbs. I had a lot of opportunity other folks didn't have. I think while it's not perfect these days, I think it's a lot better. And so, yeah, it's it's hard to say. Yeah. You know, gosh.
0: Do you 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 mention that you're sort of semi-retired but still going in, still involved? Do you have a succession plan as far as leadership goes? Yeah. Given that you have a very clear vision of what you want to happen with this company you know, even after you leave.
1: That's funny. We had an offsite this fall up at Madden's, and that was one of the uh, issues we were dealing with. We have I have uh, chiefs. You know, we don't have president, vice president, and all that. There's me, and then I have seven chiefs. Chief. Uh, you know, CFO, uh, the, the the chief marketing, whatever, whatever, whatever. And we had two of seven chiefs now retire after the pandemic. Mm. So that's a pretty big turnover at the top. And we never really had a plan for that because we didn't have to. They were with us almost from the start. And so we have been talking about succession planning and that's tough. And what we've begun to do now that we're a bigger company is we've kind of created a program. It's interesting. Like you've heard of the quiet quitting. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I've got my own opinions on that. But um, what we've realized is what we've been doing is kind of quiet promoting. Hmm. Is that the people who in, in, in their job and especially with managers who do more than they're assigned to, we see that. Mm-hmm. And we start to feed that. And that becomes that kind of ladder climbing track. And also those that gladly come into the office and work. Yeah. And so what we've done is we've recognized that's kind of how we promote. And so we're now beginning to more formalize that and, and work with people who want to build their careers and say, all right, if you want to build your career and eventually, you know, climb to maybe take my job someday, you have to learn every aspect of the business. Mm-hmm. And so, great, you're a software engineer today. You need to go over and work in customer support. You need to get out and help with sales. You got to mm-hmm. understand the other aspects. Sure, and so sure. we're creating those opportunities. And that's not for everybody, but that now becomes the filter for kind of climbing up that ladder. Yeah. So my hope is, um, you know, I've, I've got some ideas, but my hope is, again, over the next five years, we're going to kind of see the cream rise to the
0: top. I want to touch on your foundation work for just a minute. You did make some headlines not yeah. that long ago when you announced that you were going to give out a $1 million prize for any local nonprofit that could organize the state's mental health and addiction providers into one accessi- easily accessible network that right. was the mission right did you give away the money did it work have you made progress
1: yeah well that came from 11 years ago my son had a psychotic break and uh no symptoms that we knew of prior to that he came home one day and he was paranoid schizophrenic mm. you know and that that'll freak you out as a parent yeah yeah so we went to the emergency room over at mercy and uh um, you hear all the stories of the parents and their kids sitting in the e r for days. That was us, yeah, there were no beds calling around like to Sioux Falls and Chicago and everything looking for a bed and that was an eye opener I mean this is Minnesota, this is the Twin Cities. We got this figured out right mm-hmm. wrong, and so that became my journey on better understanding our behavioral health system and then I got involved very soon after that with Alina, and we I did some philanthropical work with them to kind of provide a mental health resource for all their ERs and doctors. And and one thing led to another. I put my foundation together to kind of start managing that and we started off by giving a little bit of money to a lot of different organizations and the challenge was while we we're doing good you couldn't see it. So then we started consolidating our giving and we gave a lot of money to fewer organizations. But what we found was a number of those that we gave money to, they didn't manage it real well. They weren't good businesses per se, mm-hmm. and so the experiment last year that you're referring to, what if we dumped a bunch of money in but put a bunch of management with it? How would that work? So we made this announcement, you know, and the idea of the uh, the network prize was creating a resource that regular people like us, if you've got mental health or addiction problems, how do you find? resources that mm-hmm. can help you. And we didn't say it was going to use tech or anything else. We said, just solve the problem. Well, we had, uh, uh, you know, dozens of entrants that came in from all over the place. Everything from Alina, they put a proposal in, um, some group out in California that has horses. You know? <laughs> and we read through these things. And it's like, these are all interesting, but they, they're not addressing the, the need that we put out there. So we limited uh, we, we, we reduced it down to three. We had three organizations come in and present. And out of that, there were two. One was a tech company that has an online directory. It's not even a company. It's two people working part-time. And then the other one was an organization that has um, uh, uh, mental health and substance use counselors all over the state.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we said, boy, if these two can work together, right, and effectively take that website that company A has, and then company B's uh, counselors make them like the customer support reps, mm. this could work. Mm-hmm. So we started working with them, and it became clear that that tech company was not interested in real— they just wanted more money for their little tech platform. So we wound up uh, agreeing that they weren't the right mix in this. So then we went, and where we are right now is we're, we're with uh, MNPRA, which is the um, uh, the, the people company. And we're working with them. They're doing requirements gathering. And this is very much when you go back to like what I was doing at Centennial at the start of our company. Mm-hmm. That's basically them. <laughs> you know, wow. They understand it. They're putting all these requirements together. We're looking at commercial off-the-shelf software. Either we're going to pay for a bunch of licenses or maybe develop a new platform. We'll see. And that's kind of the next probably three months is going to be in that process. So, and, so not and as been, easy
0: to give away the money as you thought it was going to be. Yeah,
1: tell me about <laughs> it. And also, what you learn is you can't like with a million dollars, you can't just write a million dollar check because you'll you'll it'll go away. And so what we've been doing is, in addition to uh, funding their work on this, you know, basically with progress payments and deliverables, kind of like you do if you're investing in an early stage company, you don't just give them ten million dollars and say go. You say, look at, I've got this pool of money. Now you have to meet milestones to tap into it. That's what we're doing, and. uh it's going well. It I don't know that's taking longer than I would have thought, but it's just different than I would have thought. Hmm. But we are getting a lot of positive stuff. And another thing we've done is we've decided to focus initially on Anoka County. Anoka County, by the way, has the highest uh has actually the second highest of any county in the state of opioid overdose rate, only second to hennepin, which is a much bigger population. So on a per capita basis, Anoka County is a disaster. So we're starting there. And then if we can show that this works and figure out how it happens, I do a lot of work with the, the governor and the legislature and whatnot. And we've been kind of priming the uh, rails for this. If we can show something works in Anoka County, what we hope to do then is expand it across the state of Minnesota with the help of uh, DHS and the Department of Health and other the legislature and so on. Amazing, but we'll see. Just like I piloted at Centennial to figure it out, that's kind of Anoka County right now, hmm. and we'll see where it goes from there. Absolutely, but there's no lack of money on it. Money is not the object on this, but yeah. again, you don't want, you know, like with business, you don't want to just throw money at things because then you get stupid. Right. So right. it's working so far. Yeah.
0: Lots of learnings. Um, last bit of advice: you've given some great advice for for entrepreneurs and and innovators. W- what about for parents? parents who maybe have your app or they haven't opened it and they're intimidated <laughs> what what should what should parents of school-age kids be doing right now well to like I said the
1: uh, you know the biggest predictor in a student's success is just being involved and it's you don't need to be a, a a dragon mom or a helicopter parent As a matter of fact usually what I recommend is when you're using our app you have you know about everything that's happened to your kid in school don't don't beat them over the head with it you know, don't every day they come home, ah, I see you got a B on your paper, you know, whatever. Just, you know, it, it, I, don't, I don't think my son will listen to this. <laughs> For one of my kids, you know, I put a tracker in his car, but you never tell them the tracker's in the car, right? right? Or that you're tracking their phone. Yeah. You got to just keep that on the DL, you know? Yeah. And that's the same thing with a lot of our information It's just use it as a guide mm-hmm. to work with your kids, you know? It, you know that they haven't turned their paper in. Don't, don't say, hey, I see your, t-, you know. You need any help with that paper? Are you done with it? You know, just it's being a parent, mm-hmm. it's having that additional tool. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Uh, and then what we also notice is uh, I've seen online, like TikToks, when uh, high school kids graduate now, in the graduation ceremony, what they'll do is, you know, they get their diploma, they put their tassel on the other side of their cap, and then they delete the Infinite Campus app from their phone. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> this is like a thing yeah
0: wow yeah. quite a legacy yeah yes <laughs> well charlie it's amazing what yeah. you have built and uh continue to do thank you so much for sharing your story cool. yeah
1: appreciate appreciate having me on
0: Well, so much to think about, so many great takeaways from Charlie's experience as an entrepreneur. I am still thinking about what he was saying about how we're gonna see more change in the next five years and coming out of the pandemic than we did in probably the last 20. For more perspective on the relationship of technology and education, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas. Opus College of Business, where Lisa Abendroth is the Academic Director for Business in a Digital World. Lisa, you spend all of your time thinking about this whole uh, education and technology. What do you see happening right now, especially coming out of the pandemic?
3: I I see just a a lot of potential for more student-centered learning, Um, being able to use technology to personalize learning, to democratize learning to make the interactions with the professor much more uniquely human. So taking away some of the work and broadening some things through technology so that the, the teachers and the educators that are face-to-face with students, even if it's through Zoom, you're still face-to-face, can really be much more on that human and whole student approach to learning.
0: So you have kind of a a positive view of technology. You're not burnt out from all the, the Zooming and all of the distance learning.
3: Um. I think there's a difference between technology and Zooming and distance learning. I would say there, z- Zooming and distance learning definitely is exhausting. Yeah. But I think there's just so much more potential from technology to get into things. So when I talk about personalizing learning, if you think about Zoom, I don't really think about it being the spot for one-way communications. I think of there's so much technology that can help with that. I think of Zoom as being the, the time for, you know, one-to-one or one-to-many really interacting with other people. But if I, if I step back, just think about what technology can do. If we think about an, an Unbox for a Moment personalized learning, what if we could, when we're talking about whatever the topic happens to be, if it's math or language or you know, science, what if we could really use technology to find content that is relevant and context appropriate for the student and get them more engaged and passionate about the topic? So you could think about in Minnesota, it might be farming or mining. Uh, but it might be, you know, getting students involved in sustainable development goals.
0: Mm. So, so letting the the technology kind of opens up worlds beyond the classroom. Yes,
3: yes. So there's this model called the the four A's model to think about what where value lies from a user or in this case a student and family perspective, and technology just provides so much access to information for us and the ability to really customize and personalize it. You know, so think about being able to curate content so that the students in your class might be learning about the same concepts, but with different contexts or what's relevant to them, or being able to go at their own speed uh, using their own learning style. Or if you bring in English as a second language to get prompts and content that is both culturally relevant and language, you know, assistance with the language as as appropriate. Hmm. I think with that kind of work, you can start to get much more engagement and passion out of students. And I think that's when the light bulb starts to go on and they start to get more interested about things.
0: Sure, I think technology today, it seems, you know, it opens all these possibilities. It also um, makes us think, wow, we've got to build something fancy because we can. It's got to have um, artificial intelligence. It's got to be an app. It's got to be this or that. You have a slightly different take on how we should think about technology and problem solving,
3: yeah. and i if if you go back to if I think about access for a moment, I think about technology just providing that access in the same way, if we go back, gosh, twenty, twenty five years, I'm bad on my time there, but when Amazon came into play with bookstores, Mm -hmm. think about now, if you live in rural America, what all you can have delivered to your doorstep that you never had access to before. Mm -hmm. And technology makes that possible. And the algorithms in there help to say, here's the things we think you might want, or maybe you want to reorder, you know, on a regular basis. If you think about, you know, using technology to democratize learning by giving you access to the, you know, the best lecturers on the topic, And that doesn't mean who's the smartest, it's who's the best at conveying the information to students and getting them involved or bringing in more diverse content. So, okay, so we want to do virtual reality or maybe it's because we don't can invest in headsets, it's just, you know, extended reality. Mm -hmm. And now you can take people to places around the world or places in the human body or you want to say, let's go underwater in Minnesota, that might be the Great Lakes or local lakes or rivers, but elsewhere it might be an ocean. And We're in an information age. There is knowledge beyond any one teacher, even the best teacher. So how do we use technology to quickly find and harness that the way Google does and Amazon does to make it really accessible to people to get them excited? Yeah. And once you start to do that and use Charlie's system to kind of automate and, and make things more efficient, you can really make the time that the teacher spends uh, more about how do we get to know what you need? How do I help you curate? How do I you know, help you develop curiosity? How do I help you develop creativity? How do I coach you through the problems you're facing? How do we work on empathy?
0: You're thinking about the problem and then how you can use technology to solve it versus yeah. just thinking about what you can do with technology. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I love yeah. that. Great advice. And I think that's so relevant to to many innovators out there who are thinking about new ways to to use technology and lots of, lots of problems we need to solve in the classroom. That's for sure.
3: Yes, there are.
0: Lisa Abendra, thank you so much for the great perspective. And thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find past episodes, interviews with many Minnesota-based entrepreneurs, and of course, professor perspective from the University of St. Thomas. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. It takes teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Forliddy. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means.